Helo a chroeso i bodlediad yr Academy Genedlaethol ar gyfer arweinyddiaeth a ddysgol yng Nghymru. Podlediad sy'n rhannu materion ac arferion arweinyddiaeth allweddol ar draws y sector addysg yma yng Nghymru ac yn rhyngwladol. Hello and welcome to the podcast from the National Academy for Educational Leadership in Wales, a podcast that shares key leadership issues and practices across the education sector here in Wales and internationally. Morning, everybody. Morning, everybody. I'm afraid I'm not a, a Welsh speaker. I know how to say Kaya Cadrus and Rhoyn de which I believe is uh, shut the door and uh, I love you. So um, <laughs> if you've got the door, you might want to shut it and I love you. My name is Sam and um, I'm coming to you from Paynton in Devon today, which is where I live. But I do, I feel at home in the Welsh community. My grandmother was called Olwyn Jones and um, I have a great deal of Welsh heritage. I even have ginger children. So the Celtic gene is strong um, for me. Um, so I have been invited here today just to talk to you um, a little bit about inclusion and why sort of we are where we are with all the new additional learning needs and the changes that can feel a little bit overwhelming. Um, now, I'm an ex-SENCO in England, um, and I'm also a qualified mental health practitioner, which kind of gives me a bit of an advantage because I can come a little bit from the psychological point of view. Um, but I also understand the impact, the positive impact on the mental health of children it has from having more inclusive environments. Um, my approach is, listen, I'm not telling you what to do. That's not what I do. We all have to find ways that work for us. What I do is I give you information. I give you things to think about and uh, to take away and decide, okay, do I agree with that? Bits I agree with, how am I gonna sort of make that work in my setting? So the first thing I'm gonna talk to you about is very much neurodiversity, because that's kind of, I know we've got the additional learning needs, but what we're doing is we're talking about being more neurodiverse as opposed to neurotypical. And I do quite like the word neurodiverse um, because it's it just feels more friendly, but that's quite interesting. And I'll talk to you about that later, that why that may not be a good thing. But you have neurotypical and neurodiverse, which means that the brains are wired differently. Okay, and it's not less than, it's not more than, it's neurotypical or neurodiverse. And it's mostly commonly used with conditions such as autism spectrum condition, um, ADHD and specific learning difficulty. Now, the language around this is very difficult. I know some people like to say autism spectrum condition because they see disorder as a negative. And then I was chairing a conference yesterday for ACAM and somebody said, I don't like the word condition. I We should use the word disorder because it is a disease and it's not a choice. So really interesting, the whole language debate. But I'm not going to get too tied up with that now. Neurodiversity means sort of ADHD, ASC, additional learning needs. Um, specific learning difficulties. And what's interesting is it's not just us that 
is embracing inclusion in the UK. Um, I recently spoke at um, a Southeast Asia conference um, and there were American colleagues there. And what they have introduced, and I quite like elements of this, is something called the Universal Design for Learning, um, the UDL, which is sort of their way of becoming more inclusive, their additional learning needs, their differentiation. Um, and also in the Middle East, the Qatar Foundation has a new approach uh, department dedicated to SEN. So it really isn't just isolated to where we are. Even in the Far East, there are some small steps um, made towards inclusion and SEN. Now, I've put up for you the, just the universal design for learning guidelines, because I think it's quite interesting the way that they phrase it is slightly different to how we phrase it with regard to quality first teaching, high quality teaching differentiation, you know, provide multiple means of engagement, multiple means of representation multiple means of action and expression. And I quite like that simplified version of a little bit. So I've put that there in case you wanted to take a little bit of the language from that um, in order to use. Now, of course, what we're all working towards is inclusion. And we are all dedicated to making inclusive environments for the benefit of all our children. So what does inclusion mean? Well, inclusion kind of means us looking at, are some of the barriers to our ALN students and our neurodiverse students, are they actually things we've put in place? Not intentionally, but are they things that we've put in place and therefore we can reduce a lot of the issues and the barriers in place by simple things that we can do. Now, coming a bit further on in my presentation, I'm going to just mention to you a few of the simplest things you can do to already begin towards an inclusive setting and start reducing the barriers. But inclusive means that we teach all children. We are teachers of all children, not just children who learn the way we teach. And let's be clear here, it's not about increasing the workload on teachers because heaven knows the workload is huge. It's about working smarter, not working harder. Okay, that's the thing I like. Work smarter, not harder. So actually a lot of the things, you know, if we work towards a more inclusive environment, then you're going to have less workload to do because more children can potentially access what is going on and what is taking place in the in the classroom. Um, so that's why I like to sort of inclusion and I call myself an inclusion consultant. The Alliance for Inclusive Education um, says that we should adapt to disabled people and not expect them to adapt to us. And we are the adults, we are the professionals. They are children still learning. So, you know, there's the whole um, theoretical model discussion that people aren't disabled, it's the environment that disables them, which is an interesting one, but we're not gonna get into that right now. Now, I do just have to cough. I have to apologize. I've got one of the hanger on coughs. And I have to say, with a, as a middle aged menopausal woman, that comes with additional complications. Uh, so I'm just going to. There you go. OK, you didn't even notice a quick mute there. So inclusion means doing with, not to. 
And I know that, you know, when I started working in SEN, we would have massive meetings about what we're going to do to support the child. And then we'd call the child and they'd tell them what we were going to do. And, and actually, embarrassingly, once we looked really stupid because we hadn't consulted the child. So this child was really struggling in the classroom. And um, we came up with this massive plan of what we were going to put in place. All these inventions invited the child in and said, what do you think? And they said, well, Miss, quite honestly, I can't focus on the blackboard and I think I need an eye test. And he had an eye test and that's all it was. So we hadn't even asked him what the problem was and it was just an eye test. So it's very important that, you know, we do with and we consult with, with students to empower them as well. We develop positive working partnerships. We're a team around the child. I'm coming out with all the classics here, or, you know, in a minute, I'm gonna say, let's brainstorm and touch base over lunch in a minute. That's how cheesy I'm getting. Um, but also the thing is with, with inclusion, it's not a destination, it's a journey. And we're never gonna be perfect. We're never going to be perfect. So, you know, it's important to take that pressure off ourselves as teachers and as leaders already. We probably won't get it 100%, but that's okay because it's a journey and we're doing something in consultation with, all right? And there's a saying I absolutely love, and I should have put it on a slide because I know you'll love it as well, but incremental change leads to transformational change. It is about the small steps, the small steps. You know, you don't work towards a marathon by going out and running 26 miles like I know. I mean, I don't run, but apparently you don't go out and start. You build up slowly. And that's what inclusion is, is a journey. And the important psychology we have to get people to understand is that we're not doing this just for the neurodiverse students, because inclusion will benefit everybody. Inclusion will benefit every student going. It's not just about, as I said, doing it just for the neurodiverse students. So in my experience, what are some of the barriers to inclusion? And this is my opinion, and you may or may not agree to it. I think some of the barriers we have um, are rigid policies and procedures. Uh, some of them are knowledge and training that we have. Some are financial, but some are also our mindsets, which is the sort of big starting place and one of the things I want to work with today. So let's be clear. Now, I talked earlier about neurodiversity being quite a nice, friendly word. But what we have to be clear is there is some evidence that by using softer euphemisms, we are reducing the, the view of the seriousness of the additional learning need and that it, is, it can often be classed as a disability. And we have to remember this. So the whole of the UK is, um, comes under the Equality Act from 2010 and disability is one of the protected characteristics. Now, in order to be um, classed as disabled, you don't need a diagnosis. That's important. And also a diagnosis doesn't automatically mean that you're disabled. It is the impact that it has on your life. The judgment of the impact is what considers somebody is disabled. So 
physical or mental impairment which has a substantial and long-term adverse effect on that person's ability to carry out normal day-to-day activities and it's going to last or has lasted for 12 months. So quite often, you know, I, I remember speaking to parents and they say, oh, well, I've got a dyslexia diagnosis. So that means they're disabled under the Equality Act. No, it doesn't. Actually, we estimate 10 to 15 percent of the population is dyslexic, but only 4 percent are enough where it has a substantial impact to be classed as the Equality Act. Now, one of the things that, that we need to get around with our mindset is understanding that disabilities can be hidden. It's really easy for us to empathize and see with students with physical disabilities. It's not so easy for us to see hidden disabilities, okay? And I like to use the spoons analogy. Um, Apologies if some of you have heard of this, but the spoons analogy is a good way of describing how a disability affects you. So let's say we're born with 20 spoons, not born, we wake up every morning with 20 spoons and a spoon is a unit of energy, right? So if we are neurotypical, if we are able-bodied, going to work or going to school, we use three spoons. The effort of being in school all day, we use 11 spoons, So let me add this up quickly. So that means that we have six spoons at the end of the day to carry on our life, right? Now let's say we're neurodiverse or physically disabled. The effort of going to work or school is so much harder that we use six spoons. And the effort of being in school all day, we use 14 spoons. So at the end of the day, we have nothing left. We have nothing left, right? And I quite often hear, particularly around autism spectrum, is that they go, well, they're fine at school, but they have a meltdown when they get home, okay? Absolutely. This is potentially, you know, think of the Coke bottle, this is when they explode, but also because they've run out of spoons. Now, the Equality Act quite clearly says that even though the school or the workplace isn't a problem, you are expected to make reasonable adjustments so that it doesn't use all their spoons so that they can't do anything after school. All right. It doesn't use the word spoons, but it's a good way of understanding it. I don't think I've ever seen the word spoons in a legal document government, but I think it would make it more interesting. But um, now I'm hyper aware of the word spoon and what a word it is. Word. Do you, any of you get that? We like spoon. That's all you can think of. I don't spell it anyway. So we have to make adjustments so that our neurodiverse students, and that's what the whole ANN is, is that they don't use all the spoons in school so that they have spoons left to do whatever they need to do within the rest of their life. Because we know that being a additional learning needs, having additional learning needs, increases fatigue. It also increases your likelihood of mental health issues. For, for a variety of reasons, but one of which is fatigue. So this is why we're doing it. Just because we can't see the disability doesn't mean that it's not there. And I think when I explain the spoons analogy to staff, it really helps with their understanding. Okay, I, I think I get it a bit more now. And look, let's be clear. Somebody has said, we don't know who it is. I think 
they just don't want to admit they said it. But a, a student with a hidden disability allowing them to struggle when all that they need is a few reasonable adjustments is no different than not providing a ramp for somebody in a wheelchair. Okay, it's discrimination. And we need to be aware of this. So I know that some of you joining me here are leaders. And how can we lead the change? Because effective change starts from the top, right? I know that teaching is stressful. I know that there are many demands on it. Um, and I am aware psychologically of a cognitive bias called the backfire effect. OK, which is whereby when you tell somebody to do something or that they're doing something wrong, their mind goes into defense mode and they are going to believe what they are doing is the right thing and not change. OK, it's it's why it's absolutely pointless arguing with anybody on social media. There's no point in doing it. And I'm going to give you tips of how to approach CPD around inclusion um, so it's more more effective but what we need to do is provide knowledge and motivate and positive motivation always works best we need you know i'm a big fan of a lot of models where the evidence is positive motivation works better getting people to change because they want to not because they have to and this is the same with children it's a very you know we need to learn a lot from sports psychology where positive motion um, positive motivation and positive coaching and mindsets achieves so much more so develop our own growth mindset i know growth mindset was a massive buzz thing for children years and years ago um, but what about the staff growth mindset what is our growth mindset do you want to be teachers of all children are you happy to take personal responsibility for improving your practice and this isn't about criticism this is about I continue I want to get better you know, I'm getting long in the tooth here, which may come as a surprise to you because I've got a zoom filter on for all the wrinkles. OK, um, but I'm still improving what I do and continuing to review and develop. There's a great saying in cognitive behavioral therapy, no failure, only feedback. I haven't failed. I just need to think, well, how am I going to do it differently? And we need to work at actively improving our knowledge and skills for our mental health as well, because it's really good for us. So when I work with staff, I asked them, I said, can you imagine spending six hours a day, five days a week in an environment that causes you stress, sets you up to fail? Adults make you feel you're being awkward. You can't do the things that everybody else could do. And some teachers go, yeah, I can imagine that because I'm living this right now. I go, OK, there you go. Are you a positive person in their life or a negative? OK, so it's about thinking. What can I change to improve their experience? Little changes, little steps. What is my mindset? Who do I want to be in their life, a positive or a negative? And labelling, this is the power of teacher beliefs with children. There was a study done by Rosenthal and Jacobson, and it was in California. Um, and 
all the elementary school teachers got a new class of students and they were told that there were 10 intellectual bloomers, gifted and talented children in their class. And what they did, Rosenthal and Jacobson, was pulled the 10 names out of a hat, right? And told the teachers, those are your gifted and talented. And in every class, those 10 students were the ones that made the most progress. So this is how our beliefs and our mindsets make a difference. So bearing in the backfire effect and bearing in mind that collaborative working works really well with students and adults, when I go in to do training with staff in schools, it's not complicated. First of all, we discuss. So let's say we're doing it for autistic students. We put them into tables and I ask each table to discuss what are the challenges for ASC students? Or I give one table, dyslexia, one ADHD, um, one specific lending, of course, is one EAL. Um, what are the challenges in school for these students? Put yourself in their place. Sensory challenges, cognitive processing, social skills, organization. What are the challenges? Have a discussion. OK, then somebody from each table feeds back to me. And then I say, OK. I'd like you all now to discuss what you can do to reduce those challenges, because it's small steps, right? It's small steps. And they keep repeating this. How is it going? How are you doing it? You know, how is making the changes going? And what can, and I and I cannot tell you how powerful this is. This is the simplest training. You could pay me a lot of money to come in and do this in your settings if you wanted, or you could do this yourself. I'm giving you all my secrets here. Um, collaborative learning, you know, teachers learning from each other, not being told what to do. That's a great idea. The discussion it stimulates is so powerful. Okay. So as a leader, don't feel that you have to implement all the changes some of it is about facilitating and empowering teachers empowering your staff to do these things themselves giving them the skills giving them the independence to review their own situation and what is going on i just need to cough a second I did that once and I forgot to unmute. I actually missed it. And I gave the most devil alien cough, like the alien was coming out of my body and I forgot to mute. So I double check that I can. My husband says it's like aliens leaving my body um, when I do it. So let's begin the journey today. OK, there are some really easy changes that you could make today with regard to um, moving forward towards inclusion, okay? The first thing I'm gonna suggest, and this is what I'm gonna talk about here next, is do you have a standardized dyslexia-friendly format for all your written information, letters to staff, your school policy, um, how teachers present information on the boards? Do you use dyslexia-friendly fonts and format layouts? Here is the impact of that. This is dyslexia according to Wikipedia. 
Okay. This is exactly the same information written in a dyslexia friendly format. Don't use italics. Don't use underline. Okay, don't use both sides justified. Keep it simple. Use a, I've got a very pale background of gray on here to make things easier to read. Anything that you write to parents, because your parents are going to be dyslexic as well, some of them, make it more accessible and more readable to people. Other things I'm going to ask you to think about. Do you have periods in your lessons where you have spelling tests? Dyslexic people will get to a stage they're not going to get better at spelling tests. And therefore, you are setting them up to fail an exam week after week after week. What's that going to do to their self-esteem? I have teachers, they go, they have quiet reading time for 20 minutes. They must sit in silence and read. Doesn't work. They can't do it. They cannot do it. The definition of madness is doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result. If the children can't do it, we have to look at what can we change? What can we change to do that? Reading aloud, school policy. No student is ever forced to read aloud. We ask for volunteers. OK, because that's a very traumatic thing. These are tiny things that already make your journey towards an inclusion further down the line. OK, and I would love some of you to challenge me on some of these when we come to the Q&A. Um, school policies and procedures. Are they discriminatory? Are your behaviour policies discriminatory and non-inclusive? Because very often ALN students are highly, well, they feature a lot in your behaviour policy. Is it rigid? Is it the same for everybody or do you have flexibility in it? Because when, when criminals are found guilty and sentenced, the judge has a minimum and a maximum range that they can use to sentence to the criminal. And based on the individual personal circumstances, they will go somewhere within that range. And yet we have zero tolerance, rigid behaviour policies for children. So we, I, I know it's a bit inflammatory and it's a bit Daily Mail headline, but we treat criminals better than we treat children. There, I've put it out there. OK, bullying. Bullying of SEN, bullying of ALN, bullying of neurodiverse children is, is something we need to look at. Your attendance policy, how supportive of that is, is it of ALN? If you've got an ASC student for whom school is a traumatic place, they're not going to come and you can't punish them. And PE. I have a bit of a thing about PE and I need to qualify this statement with some of my best friends are PE teachers and apologies to those of you who are PE teachers, but I'm a fat woman with big boobs who did not enjoy PE as a child. Okay. And I feel that we need to do a bit better in a lot of our PE lessons with regard to inclusion. So I've just put that in there on behalf of anybody else who's not keen on PE. <laughs> Um, and we have to look at equity of access. This is how you know if your systems are discriminatory. So your SEN students, your ALN students, your neurodiverse students, 
are often overrepresented in negative aspects of school life, such as your behaviour management systems, and underrepresented in positive areas, such as school council reward systems. Now, the difference between equity, equity and equality is I'm not saying it should be 50-50. I'm saying whatever the cohort number, so whatever the percentage of the cohort is ALN, the same percentage should be ALN on your school council. The same percentage of children rewarded should be ALN. And the same percentage should be in your behaviour management systems. So if you do a load of data collection and you find that there is a big disparity in the representation, then your systems potentially are indirect discrimination. What, what are we doing here? What are we doing here? I and a lot of other people are expecting more case law to come around the Equality Act. And, and a lot of um, systems being changed because of it. Um, there was one case I know with an independent school where it had a student with ADHD that it eventually permanently excluded because of behavioural issues. And they went to court and the court found that the school had discriminated against the child because they said the behaviour of the school knew the child had ADHD when he began. And because they didn't put in any reasonable adjustments, then the child's behaviour was disruptive. And so it was their fault. Does that make sense? So they said that the school was a contributory factor and had not made reasonable adjustments, which were expected. OK, so I am expecting more case law to come, but I know you guys want to do this because you actually like children. OK, and you want to make their lives better. So, you know, don't worry about the threat of legal action. Now, I next. Right. I am going to say something to you that always causes the most consternation and discussion whenever I mention this in schools. And you're all thinking, goodness me, what is she going to say that we all have to teach naked? No, it's going to annoy you more than that. OK, trust me, I could go into schools and tell them they're all the worst teachers I've ever seen in my life. And they go, yeah, OK. And then as soon as I say what I'm going to say next, they go, oh, no, no, no. And OK, let me tell you what it is. We need to move to low arousal environments. We need to get rid of our brightly coloured wall displays. We need to move to beige. We need to move to Hessian. We need to get rid of wall displays, okay? It's what's called visual noise. It's what's called visual noise. So it is distracting to the student. We always think it means that it's welcoming and loving and wonderful. Let me show you this picture. Which class would you like to work in best? And ironically, the classroom on the left, it actually says focus wall on the top of one of the walls. How can I focus on that? All the research points towards therapeutic low arousal classrooms where we get rid of the bright colors, 
we get rid of the wall displays and you know people say yeah but they look at them no they don't briefs we know they learn better have a temporary one with clips and then you take it down take i'm just saying to you take it down and see what happens that's all i'm asking you to do try it and see what you think and then also you know the first step is whatever the whiteboard is on there should be nothing else on that wall okay nothing else around whatever the whiteboard is on because that should be the focus then low arousal environments include putting felt on the bottom of chairs so they don't make a massive noise and be overwhelming for autistic students. Um, looking at your lights in your settings, changing your bells. Are they loud? You know, a lot of schools are going towards no bells or very soft uh, bells that, that aren't in your face. So think, you know, take a walk around your setting as an autistic student with hypersensitivity of, of everything and think, OK, what could be overwhelming in this situation? Because they're not going to learn. And there's an exercise I do with staff when I do it. I'm, I'm going to tell you so you can do it as well, is that just to demonstrate what it feels like when your brain is in uncomfortable mode and how difficult it is to concentrate and focus and learn. And so I ask staff to move very close to each other so all their legs and arms are touching. Now they do it and they already start laughing because they're uncomfortable because laughter is a sign of being uncomfortable. And then I ask them to hold hands and they do it and they laugh even more, okay? And then I ask them to think, what else can you think of at the moment other than you're being uncomfortable and somebody's in your personal space? Not a lot. That's what it's like for hypersensitive people. They are uncomfortable and therefore it's difficult to learn. I then ask them to touch tongues and they all laugh and we all move back and it's great. So, you know, that is a very simple way of getting people to sort of experience what it might be like to be in the panic brain, to be in the mammalian brain or the fight, flight, freeze brain, and then say, how can you learn in that situation? You can't. So lower arousal environments. Now, one argument I also then have back is, but Sam, children, then say that it's unfair that other children get special treatment to me and I say do they do they do they really because I have a friend who got who speeded and got off does it mean I'm going to go out and speed no it doesn't and I work with the children I do assemblies with children and we talk about neurodiversity these are some great videos to show young children about um, dyslexia, ADHD, autism. And we have conversations about, should it be the same for everybody or should it be what's right for you? And they all agree, it should be what, what's right for me. And your teacher knows what's right for you. And then we have a conversation. How can you be a good friend to somebody who is ACC or neurodiverse? This is amazing. I've done this with very young children. 
And those who are neurodiverse will put their hands up and go, I think what would be helpful, Miss, is if somebody could do this. I go, that would be great. That's great. Include children in your journey to inclusion and have a conversation. Each of you is an individual. Your teacher knows how best to help each of you. We don't all need the same things. And if we're all treated the same, it's not fair. I used to have so many people say to me, why are you rewarding the naughty children by taking them out and doing things with them? And I say, well, what is your aim? Do you want me to punish them or do you want me to change their behavior? What would you like? What, what is your goal here? My goal is to change their behavior. And I can show you all the research as to why this is going to work. If you just want to punish them, then be honest. And that kind of then sort of like, oh, OK, and then they only say it behind my back, which is absolutely fine. You know, as a Senko and as an ALN, your job's not to be the most popular in the school with staff. Um, and which is a shame because most ALNCOs are very touchy feely <laughs> and we like people. So why are we doing all this? This moves on to the mindset. We need to be a protective factor for all children. Right. And then they go, yeah, but some I'm a teacher. I'm not a mental health expert. No, but you have a professional duty to know that you are not causing harm. Right. And we want to make a positive difference to this world. And I'm sure some of you have seen this video. But I just think we need to try and be, um, hang on, Mr. Pigeon for Ian Wright. Let me clip this because I've messed this up. Let me stop share. Let me escape this. And put this in here I've got two screens which makes me feel really clever until I can't actually use them and then I don't feel so clever so I'll just get that ready skip the ad so Mr Pigeon was a teacher for Ian Wright who made a big difference to his life as a child his difficult life as a child and here is a video And he owes a lot to the man who first Ian, taught Apologies about that. Ian's still the highest scoring striker ever to play for Arsenal. And he owes a lot to the man who first taught him to kick a ball. His old school teacher, Sid Pigden. As I haven't seen him for, what, 23, 24 years. And so he would now be expecting me to be six feet under, I would think. I, I don't actually think, uh, he, he probably won't recognise because he won't believe it's me. <laughs> Hello, Ian. Long time no see. Mr Pigner. <laughs> You're alive. I'm alive, he says. How are you doing? I can't believe that someone said you was dead. As you see, I'm very much in, and I'm so glad you've done so well with yourself. He was so um, supportive all the time. He, he kind of like had me as, as his kind of like special guy. <laughs> I think that's so lovely and it makes me cry which is because I'm hormonal um, every time and I just think 
be Mr. Pigden for somebody, you know, and I've met children who I thought I'd let down at school and I meet them and they're like, thank you, miss. You believed in me and everything and you really helped me. And, and that's made such a massive difference to my life. And so that's what we want to be. That's what inclusion is about. That's what we're here for, you know, um, is to be Mr. Pigden for somebody. So on that emotional, I sort of did a bit of an emotional promotion there at the end. That's my initial session over. You know, I've put some questions you might want to think about during your discussion. Time. What do you think? Do you agree with me? You know, what do you not agree with me? What steps can you take? What are your barriers? Um, what can you do moving forward? What are your challenges? You know, if you want to ask me anything, um, please feel free. So um, that's my first bit done. Welcome back, everyone. Um, thank you again to Sam for such a, a fantastic presentation. It was something that I personally um, really enjoyed listening to. I know um, colleague, colleagues will have as well. Um, hopefully we've we've got some questions that are going to start to, to come into the chat box shortly for um for us to pose to Sam. Um, the more tricky the better, I think, Sam. It's 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 safe to safe to oh. say. Um, if we if colleagues could put any questions they've got or any thoughts or any um, responses to Sam's presentation to the chat and then we'll go through and we'll we'll take those um, individually as we as we go. Um, I think just whilst we're waiting for some of those to come in, I think as I reflect on on, on your presentation, so I think what came through for me was that importance of the whole school or setting or service approach um, and ensuring that everyone's on board with that. And from a leadership perspective, I think that's really, really important. Um, I think one of the barriers sometimes to getting this really spot on and really 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 meaningful and working well is is getting everyone on board I suppose I've wanted to ask what do you see your bit the biggest barrier being to achieving a whole school or setting or college um, inclusive culture I do think the mindset mindsets of people and getting everybody on board in the same is the biggest one we you know you have a lot of well-established mindsets is what I call um you have a lot of mindsets that struggle to understand the hidden disability concept um and so it's about very much everybody as a leader it's getting everybody to recognize you have a massive part to play in the life of this child and one conversation with one adult can make a massive difference um and how it is what they do is important as well um so using the positive motivation and the growth mindset you may not understand it but um it it is here and recognize the brilliant part that you can play in the life of that child. So working on everybody's mindset towards it, for me, is the biggest thing to do. Yeah, well, thank you, Sam. Uh, I'm going to invite um, Rianne Milton next to ask a question, if that's OK. So I think, Rianne, you've put it in the chat as well, but we'll we'll put the spotlight onto you if that's OK. I'll let you pose your, your question to Sam. Deal. Yeah, Dioch Richards. Um, yeah, thanks, Sam. Just just for me personally as well, I really with your presentation, you, you brought it back to inclusion and you kept it so simple. And if we bring everything back to the definition of inclusion, it really reframes your thinking. Yeah. Um, so thanks for that, Sam. Yeah, our question and our thinking was lots to do with um teaching assistants and the role of the teaching assistant. So we had a, a broad discussion around how um, Noel, who works, works in the special sector, has, has his teaching assistants in terms of pastoral support. However, their job descriptions are still teaching assistants. So our, our question is around how we value and 
really change mindsets and culture around our teaching assistants to change their job descriptions to meet the job they do um, and to value what they do really and, and we looked at that in three things it was about um, job description training and the retention of these staff so just wanted to know your thoughts um, about that really um, yeah, I mean, teaching assistants, their role is changing. We know that um, the traditional Velcro TA way of working isn't as it used to, you know, isn't as effective as it was. And it is about moving forward and being involved in the process of learning and develop independence in the young person and supporting that, which is kind of working pastorally and, and using Socratic questioning. So, Rianne, I think you're well on the line there. I know the Education Endowment Foundation has got specific guidelines towards uh, using teaching assess, um, assistance effectively um, and little things like you've got to be involved more in the process of the learning rather than the end result. Um, so it's not about getting them to complete the task, it's about teaching them, improving their executive function skills, teaching them independence, what can you do, how can you do it? And this does come with pastoral because they have a huge influence on self-esteem and self-esteem affects our belief and our outcomes. So um, yeah, I think you're spot on with what you're saying there. Thank you both. Um, I've got Gavin Gibbs next, who, who we're going to go over to, if that's okay, Gavin, for your, for your question and response to Sam. Good morning. Thank you, Richard. Thank right. you, Sam. It was a lovely presentation. Uh, the, the discussion we had in our group was, uh, was very interesting. Uh, there was no question from some, some of the people in the group, the, lots of ALN calls, but they found it really refreshing to, to hear what you were saying. Um, so my question is coming from, I suppose, from my sector. So I'm, I'm from the youth work sector. Yeah. Um, and the difficulty that we have is a lot of our provision is open access. So a lot of the young people, we we literally having to, they, they come into the door and we don't know their background. So we we don't know a lot of their needs. So I suppose how how could we take a more um, welcoming approach? That you know, I know you're talking about the dyslexic uh, friendly formats and things like that. Um, because it's only sort of every quarter when our management information system sort of marries up with the, the local schools one that we realise that we have actually got a quite a high po uh, population of ALN coming to us. So over the last year, we've had over, I think, about 250 young people with ALN accessing our provisions. But when we first start working, when we don't know these needs, so how could we be a little bit more holistic in, the, in that approach? Okay, so it's great um, you, that you're looking at it in the dyslexia-friendly font and the low arousal. It's about providing a range of ways. So I would use, you know, I did the universal design for learning um, grid at the beginning. Use some of those questions to think, right, when students come into us, how can they tell us what their needs are? How, what opportunity, how many ways can we give them to tell us their needs? How many ways can we give them to express what they're doing? How many ways, you know, so do we, do we have writing? Do we maybe use dictaphones? Um, do we maybe do it by text? Um, a sort of a text thing because there's um, a lot of research shows that autism spectrum um, condition people text better and are able to have discussions better electronically than they are verbally so it's just about thinking what are the variety of ways that we can use to access information with each other and again don't don't presume you have to know exactly how to support them when they come in the door it's a case of how can I help you 
what can I do to help you? What works best for you? Um, you know, what what ways have worked best for you previously? Do you struggle with reading? Do you struggle expressing how you feel? You know, do we need to maybe use some art therapy um, or draw and talk or things like that instead? Um, so I think it's just being aware of it, like I said, and providing a range of ways to communicate with them um, and it is your best start, Gavin. But the fact that you've got the mindset you want to do it is amazing already. Yeah, we have we have sort of targeted provision for young people and young adults with learning disabilities. So we, we, we're still kind of um, trying to get to uh, get that provision running how yeah. it should in terms of addressing those needs. But we have found through, like I say, marrying up our systems with the education systems in Torvine that we're working with a lot of ALN across our other provisions and and so it's, i suppose it's just making sure that our approach is is inclusive to all so i, and I you appreciate can approach that them. do you do you survey them afterwards you know maybe you could do an informal what could we have done better when you first joined us how could we have you know built a positive relationship with you quicker what did you need from us that we didn't provide that's that's a really good idea thank you okay yeah, thank you, Gavin. I think it comes back to Sam there, the importance of that person-centred practice and putting the, the child or young person right at the centre of everything. And, and particularly when you were talking about um, bringing the child back into a meeting after everything had been decided for them and potentially it wasn't the right decision for the child. I think that that really resonated with me um, as, as we went through. Thank you. Um, Craig Thomas, I've got next. Craig, Borada. Good morning. Um, thank you, Samantha, for your presentation. It was great. Thank you. Um, we, we had quite a good group because there was two of us from independent special sector, um, two from FE and one from primary. Right. Um, and there were lots of different thoughts around, around inclusion. But I think the biggest thing was looking at, do you think that there's maybe limits? Like, where's the limit to, to what adjustments you put in place before you know, a, a child, you decide the child's needs can't be met in that provision. And do you think that that's inconsistent across a lot of schools, like this idea of reasonable adjustment? Um, and also when you've got to consider, you know, building their, their resilience and independent skills as well. That is a challenging question, Craig. And like you, it's, it is a hard one. There does come a point where inclusion isn't going to do everything. And it is reasonable adjustments, not all adjustments. Um, it's just a case of looking at the child individually and having a conversation with them and is what we're doing detrimental to them. Unfortunately, you know, the education system previously, it had to get to worst case scenario before any help was put in place. Um, so that led to a lot of very low self-esteem with a child. Um, I wish I had a magic answer to that one, Craig. I don't, um, but hopefully I look pretty while saying that. That's all I've got on that one, I'm afraid. Sorry. No, that's fine. It was just something that um, we will... Yeah, <laughs> no, and it, it is true. It is true. What? Where is the point? And I've got a couple of slides just to end up um, with this session to talk about what skills we can give the young person to leave with as well and how much difference we can make. Yeah. So you're almost psychic with that one. And also, I think, you know, we discussed about the, the new curriculum for Wales and um, the changes that will bring to, to more yeah. sort of people-centred, inclusive practices. Yeah. Very much so. And, you know, some of the, the system's not set up to be inclusive currently, but the changes 
will be made. And I'm envious of the Wales changes um, that are being made because I think they're more inclusive than what, what's happening in England. Thank you. Yeah, Craig, thank you, Sam. Thank you. Uh, and then we'll go to Matthew O'Brien next. Borda, Matthew. Borda, uh, thank you. It was really interesting this morning, Samantha, and it was um, actually from a private perspective quite reassuring a lot of the things that you were saying, what we had tried to put in, because it's interesting in our group, um, the, the majority from further education and with older, working with adults, and looking specifically at the, what we feel is important when you want an inclusive environment is making sure we want to think you take your opinion on this it's the whole school teaching and learning policy yeah. what you put into place looking at the environment is that important and that the, also when we look at the early years uh, you can't ask a non-verbal three-year-old how they feel about the environment and what's best for them and with the increasing number of children coming into mainstream with high levels of need I think uh, we didn't want to sound negative, but, no, 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 it's, but it's, it's, it's all very well, the children coming into mainstream and having this specific support. If the local authorities don't support us with funding to make our schools accessible buildings to cater for the needs of these children. But what we felt has been successful in our school is making sure that our teaching and learning procedures throughout the school cater for the needs of the children. And we just felt that that was sort of the message that we could take from what you're saying. Schools having the courage to be able to put procedures in place that cater for as many pupils as possible. Yeah. That was, I know that's more of a statement than a question, but we yeah. wanted to be reassured going in the right direction. Yeah, 100%, Matthew. And it's like I said, look, you know, I could sit here and say some idealistic things, but you guys are at the coalface of it every single day trying to do that. And that's why I try to get over it. It is a journey and we've got a long way to go. And, you know, but the fact that we're on the journey is really beneficial to a lot of children. And I appreciate what you're saying. You know, it's very difficult to communicate with young children. So it's looking at ways of, does their behaviour change with the change in the environment? What is the most I can do? You know, what is the least I can do? And some of the children I've worked with, the only thing I could do was say, I'm really sorry, your life is so bad and it's not fair. You know, and that's all I could do. But the fact that that was acknowledged and they were involved made a little bit of a difference for them. But yeah, 100% with you. Thank you. Thank you. Matthew, thank you. Um, one thing that's just cropped up, I was reflecting on um, as, as we were thinking about that then, Sam, is I suppose your thoughts on the role of um, the governing body and in terms of professional learning for governors in view of the strategic role they have in, in supporting the leadership and management of the school. Um, where do they fit into this, um, this puzzle of inclusion that we're, that we're unpicking and putting together as we go through the session? Well, your governors are massively important and having forward thinking governors um, really can make a difference into a setting. And whenever I do ALN co-training or SENCO training, I'm always saying, get your governor, make friends with your, your ALN governor and, and get them in to support you and be on your side because then you they will be making a difference for you at strategic level. Um, and they can be so powerful and, you know, get them involved in the day-to-day -day things and meeting the children and understanding why they're doing what they're doing as well. Thank you, Sam. Lovely. Um, I've got a question from um, Richard as well, so we'll pass over to Richard Edwards now. Hi, Sam. Thanks for your presentation this morning. How are you, all right? 
Yes, that's fine. Thank you. Um, my, my question is around um, budgets and involvements of Alenkos and setting of budgets. So if you were uh, an Alenko in a small school, you could be the head teacher responsible for budget and you're the Alenko. In larger schools, um, that responsibility may not be uh, uh, as sort of important. But what are your thoughts there on Alenkos having a direct say in budget allocations for, for their area? I think it's really important that they do. However, realistically, I'm aware that a lot don't. Um, and very often with budgets restrictions, um, the ALN department is usually one of the first to be hit, um, unfortunately. Um, whilst it's great to talk idealistically, it's a case of what is my situation? How can I make this situation work best for me? Um, so there's kind of... Um, Lazarus and Folkman did a stress response system and they said that if you can't change something, change how you think about it for your own sake of your mental health. So it's a case of if I can't be involved in the budget and I can't increase the budget, which I would love you ideally to be involved with, what's the best I can do with what I've got in this situation um, and how can I make that work best? Carol McDonald, um, if that's OK, please go on to Carol. Hi, Samantha. Hi. Hi. Um, um, it's just a quick question. What With reasonable adjustments, obviously we have to rely heavily on tutors and their normal way of working or, or the support staff. If we haven't got that, for example, in the case that you gave with the student with ADHD, what, what can we do? What would you recommend? What would you advise we do to support them? Are you talking into... <laughs> Access arrangements, Carol. As well as, yes. So overall, um, so it would include access arrangements. Yeah. So where you've got a medical diagnosis, um, then you can do sort of a strengths-based, um, what are their strengths, what are their challenges? You can use that um, to put in any reasonable adjustments that you feel are necessary. Um, with, with access arrangements, they don't need to have them done in lessons every day. Mock exams count as that it's just in there because in lessons, they don't sit and write for two hours long. So it may not be the problem that arises that. So with regard to access arrangements, having a medical diagnosis or um, a, an additional needs, the, the plan, um, will work just as well. Um, with regards to sort of in-class support, I would suggest you go in and observe and look at their grades, what are their areas of difficulty and speak to the students. You know, what areas are you struggling in? Um, what support could we put in place that you think would help you? Okay, lovely, thank you. Okay. Yeah, thank you, Carol. Um, Dawn's just saying in chat that she agrees that involving the governors and having that strategic yeah. role with finance of inclusion is vital. And I think I think we'd all we'd all agree with that, Dawn. Thank you for raising that. It's, I think it's really important. Um, I think we've come to the end of the questions and points there, Sam. And there's lots of really fruitful discussion from a variety of sectors and variety of roles and, and things within the schools, colleges, um, youth services and, and other organisations. So it was, it was really great to hear those. So thank you, um, everyone, for engaging in those. So we'll pass back to you, Sam, for your um, final summarisation and final remarks and things now and then and then back over to Tegwin. So, Dior, thank you, Sam. OK, um, yeah, it's, look, 
it's a journey. It's it's one that we're all on. Um, I just want to sort of finish with a couple of, of new things um, that I want to draw your attention to. Um, the first one is the study that was done by the Frostig Center in California. Um, and I'm happy to send you a PDF of this if you want to share it with my slides. Um, and they identified six success attributes for adults with um, learning needs that made them more successful um, in society. And successful wasn't just about money, it was about career, it was engagement, it was about happiness, it was about belonging. And so when we're talking about inclusion, it's also about empowering our students with these six success attributes to make them more successful when they leave us, okay? So um, inclusion isn't just about reducing all the barriers, it's also empowering the ALN students to um, manage their own lives. So to have self-awareness, so to be aware of their challenges and to be aware of their strengths and their superpowers and how they can do that, to be proactive in seeking how to learn, be proactive in their environment. Um, you know, instead of saying, I'll wait till the teacher comes and helps me or a teaching assistant, what can you do? How can you find that out yourself? Um, and assistive technology is marvellous with regard to this. They're going to be using it in the future. To have a level of perseverance, to not give up, um, but to know when it is time to change the goal um, and to have a flexible goal, to have goals that we do and that we use, um, to have uh, support systems available. But the important thing about the support systems was that they reduce in the amount of support that they give as the person gets older, okay? So if you are, um, what I always recommend to settings is if you're in year two or year six or year 11 or, or year 13, try to reduce the amount of support that they have that it's equivalent to the next level of their education so that we can prepare them for what's coming in the next bit um, and give them emotional coping strategies to understand, you know, to develop resilience, to develop a way of reframing failure, to develop a way of of boosting my own self-esteem and, and to have these skills is going to make them a lot more successful um, in the long term. So like I said, is inclusion is doing with the student and how can I empower you to be more independent, as independent as possible um, in order to become a successful adult. It's not just about um, teaching them to survive academically. And, and the really final thing is that I want to say to you is, is our mindsets also have to be realistic. OK, and when I first came into um, SEN, I was going to make lives perfect for every child. I was going to do all this stuff and I was going to be wonderful. And then when I trained in mental health, I was going to fix all these children. You can't. We don't fix children and we don't make their lives perfect. And we don't want to make their lives perfect because we know that actually a little bit of adversity increases resilience. We know that helicopter parenting reduces um, longer term outcomes for children. They need to learn to do themselves. What our role is, is to make lives better. That's entirely what we're here to do. So part of inclusion is 
ensuring that you don't have unrealistic expectations because that is also going to damage your mental health and your well-being and you're going to burn out a lot quicker what we do is make lives better and like I said there was one child I worked with such a catastrophic life um social services weren't interested and and all I could say was I'm really sorry it's not fair you don't deserve it um and that apparently made a difference for him so I have, if you want to get in touch, I have lots of free CBT resources on my websites. I have podcasts. I have things like that. I'm on Facebook Live for your mental health and well-being, um, Facebook, if you wanted to do that as well. And that's me. Gobeithio'n eich bod wedi mwyn hair bennod hon o bodlediad yr Academy Arwynyddiaeth. Tan ysgrifiwch ar Spotify, podlediadau Apple neu Google a pheidiwch byth a cholli penod. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Leadership Academy podcast. Subscribe on Spotify, Apple or Google Podcasts and never miss an episode.